0: Hello, Vass here. Welcome to the show. One of the most loved actresses at work today, Minnie Driver, has had an extraordinary life both on and off the screen. She tells her story in a fabulous new memoir, Managing Expectations, and we hosted her live on stage in conversation with author and editor Erica Wagner to find out more. Enjoy.
1: You start the book... With a kind of a tough story, you're being carried back to boarding school against your will, so it seems. The reader gets kind of one impression at the beginning of this story. What makes you, it's a very arresting way to start.
2: Well, I did. My mother used to tell the story of me um, screaming that I was being abducted and um, throwing my clothes out the window which seems counterintuitive to then wanting to run away because it's much harder to run away naked than it is to run away clothed, as I found out. It's funny how your your drama becomes your comedy and your humour when you look back. But it was very, very painful at the time. Like, I did not want to go to boarding school. I did not want to be away from my mother or my father, for that matter, sleeping in a room of... Noisy, snuffling strangers. Um, I really wanted to be at home. But uh, there were, again, I think what's interesting is like you sort of, to begin with your tragedy, your little nine year old tragedy, and then as you open the aperture, you start realizing the, and framing and giving context to the relationship that my mother was having with the man that she had to marry in order to maintain 50 50 custody. Of me and my sister. So you you start to get the context as the story goes on, but yeah, it begins in a very dramatic way because I I was a very dramatic little girl.
1: (laughs) Give us without giving too much away from the book, of course, give us a little more perhaps of that context, because your mother, who does is it's so moving in this book, she comes across as the most extraordinary. Person, and we'll say a little more about that um, later. But she was trying to accomplish, as you indicated, something very specific. She was trying to kind of take care of you and your siblings.
2: Yeah, she definitely was. I mean, it was, you know, it was complicated. It was complicated by the fact that in, you know, 1976 was the first year that a woman could sign for a mortgage without a male cosign. It was So oppressive. And when, you know, my parents weren't married, and when they broke up, my sister and I were made wards of court. And the judge, this, I always just imagined him as just a sort of periwigged, patriarchal bugger who said, who gave her impossible, you know, an, um, an impossible set of tasks to accomplish in order to hang on to her kids, which was she had to be married have us in school and own her own home, and he gave her seven weeks to do that. So, you know, she she did it, and I think it was complicated and perhaps not thought out all the way, and there was, you know, an enormous amount of grown-up pain around all of that that I didn't understand, and certainly my sister and I were suddenly living a very, very different life to the one that we had been living before, and I rejected it completely. Um... I rejected the, the mildewy cottage that we moved to, the falling down, damp, one shared bathroom. And I really rejected my stepfather, like, with great articulation. <laughs> you know, which I think was probably quite, was probably quite hard for him. But,
1: you know, not that hard. I mean, <laughs> But I think one of the wonderful things you do in the book is, and we were discussing this a little bit in the green room, is you feel very much in the present moment with the nine-year-old you or the eleven-year-old you as we go on, the reader has a sense that there is grown-up pain around, that the grown-up reader can guess at but we feel very strongly that Minnie's passion and that's one of the things that's so powerful about the book. Thank you. It's interesting because I suppose I thought when I started reading the book, well she's there she's going to go to this awful boarding school that she's going to hate and be miserable and run away from. But that actually was not in the end the case.
2: No, it's a wonderful school. I you know it's you know, I return to the not just the idea but to the ethos and the reality of that school over and over again, like in my life. I, I reference it, I reference my teachers. My son now goes there, which was all of his choice. Um, it's, it's really interesting, like, it's been a huge figure in my life, my school, um, even though it was the separation from my mum was, was really difficult. But I mean, I'm interested in like how you amplify that voice, like, it's such a pure voice when you're a child the undiluted version of who you are and so many things are forming that adults are constantly trying to, to reclaim that beginner's mind that a child has constantly. We try and do that, I think. I really wanted to hear her voice and because I always thought she was so funny and so misunderstood. <laughs> and then I found myself in this wonderful school that could accommodate the... Um, I suppose the big emotions that I had, and they helped me, you know, it really helped me channel them creatively.
1: Tell us a little bit about Alistair. Well, Alistair...
2: Alistair's one of the most amazing people, you know, on the planet. Uh, He he really was sort of... I mean, I say in the book that he's a mixture of, like, Dickens and Chaucer, like a character out of Dickens and Chaucer, because he really is, but he was the kindest... um, he paid attention to who the children were as individuals. He, he actually wrote a really famous report that my mother framed, and um, I now have it um, in my house. And he just said, I've, this was when I was 12, he said, I very much enjoyed teaching Minnie this term. She is a very difficult person sometimes. Um, I assume all her husbands will love her dearly. <gasps> LAUGHTER First report ever. And I remember <laughs> I remember my mother reading it out. All her husbands will love her dearly. You don't have to get married, Minnie. Like I was like, that's the headline? Okay. He is he was a wonderful teacher. He taught me how to be an actor through teaching me how to write from a very early age, from really from seven. Crafting, I was I was telling you earlier. He would make us do these things on a Monday morning. He would post on the notice board these things called observations. And it would be making a cup of tea, drinking a glass of water, throwing a tennis ball. And you'd have to write two sides of A4 paper about that to really explore language and texture and try and figure out how to write. And he, from that, from this apparently sort of banal exercise, he would write the most incredible notes on your essays... He paid attention to the, the detail that, that I'd found. He would divine things about your character from what you'd written. And he taught me all the way through, like all the way from when I was tiny all the way till when I was grown. And I think he saw the whole of me. And he judged the whole of me. You know, he, he was never pious enough to think that like teachers didn't judge children. He was like, you know, judge you all the time. You're dreadful, you're nicer than Tom. Tom's, Tom's really good at sports, but he can be awful. You know, there was, there was something holistic about the way he taught everybody. And um, I really love him. Yeah, he helped me so much. He was so kind to me when I was incredibly sad. And he, he really helped me find my voice in all these different ways.
1: And also, as an actor. Because oh yeah, totally. you're acting... Tell us a little bit about the beginning of your, this really important political play that well, you took part in. Well, you know, the A3
2: is a busy road. <laughs> and the A3 was even busier, you know, in the 70s. And there were lots of people who lived around Petersfield and Hazelmere and where we lived who were super grumpy about how long it took them to get to London. And so they proposed the Conservative Council proposed that they build this bypass. And the bypass was going to destroy not only acres of you know, the environment, but also was gonna go straight through the bottom of our school, cut down this 500-year-old oak tree, and, and carve up a lot of the school's property. So in the best traditions of this super strange progressive school that I went to, and that my mother also went to, by the way, and everyone in my family except my dad, they, they said, well, the best thing that we can do is write a protest musical. So <laughs> that's what that's People what don't happened. say
1: that often enough, I think.
2: So these teachers, they wrote... It was the most brilliant musical. It was called Bypass the Parcel. And we had this special assembly to explain how clever that title was. And they wrote, it was sort of... It was like... It was kind of Kurosawa in a, in a protest musical because it was from all these different points of view. Like It was the statisticians who were pumping out all of their ideas about why roads were cool and great in the future. And then it was all the grumpy people trying to get to Hailing Island on the bank holiday weekend with their kids screaming. And then it was like the road itself. And um, the road was... The road road was... We danced the road. We were in, like, black balaclavas with, like, yellow lines down the front. (laughs) And we did this super... Like, there were no words. The road, like, danced its, like, viral load across the stage. It was completely brilliant. And there was one... And brilliant lyrics and really wonderful music. And there was one solo in the whole thing. And you had to audition for this solo, which was to save the 500-year-old oak tree. Now, that tree and I were already deeply connected because it was the place, when I ran away naked and sad, I would climb this tree and I would hide in this tree. But nonetheless, everyone had to audition. And that was my first audition, was auditioning to sing to save this tree. And as I say in the book, you know, I really loved and wanted to save the tree, but I more wanted to sing the song in front of lots of people <laughs> so, you know I've like struggled I've struggled with with advocacy and attention grabbing <laughs> maybe always
1: <laughs> and you have the most wonderful conversation with your friend Greta
2: yeah Greta's not her real name I changed it to protect her identity she knows who she is No, i joking <laughs> she probably does but yeah, Greta and I had about this,
1: empiricism like, and subjectivity.
2: Yeah, we wrestled with empiricism and subjectivity. I didn't understand why someone could be the best, like the, the, This idea that there was one person who was destined or could only sing this song. And I asked her. I was like, "Why does there have to be one person?" She was like, "I don't know." And I was like, "But, but you? But but we're not. You know, we're not supposed to." judge each other and she was like well you know somebody's got to judge us and we we both auditioned for the part and then I got the part and it was really the end of our friendship Um, which was devastating and a first foray into how lonely it is at the top you know of a of a tree I didn't plan that that was quite good that was
1: good that was good that was very good that was very good but do you think that, you know, it's an early lesson. You, you do go on in the book to tell stories about the not exactly, it isn't random, the way you're chosen, but it is subjective. It is subjective, and I think it's
2: about internalizing that subjectivity, which as a young woman, and certainly any young woman who wants to be an actor in my opinion has some version of a schism within them because you just have to have these breaks in order to have conflict to make you an interesting actor but i mean in my opinion but you
1: you know you can get a bit you can get a bit lost you come across as someone of fierce independence from a very early age, someone who's really trying to feel the boundaries of their own identity, one of the places or one of the backdrops against which this happens um, is the Hotel Fontainebleau in Miami. This is an extraordinary story and I think particularly extraordinary to read now when those of us raising children are doing so in the age of mobile phones and knowing where everyone is all the time can you say a little something about what, what happened and what this experience has, has meant for you, it really resonates in the book well, it
2: was a great adventure which gives it some context, it would not happen today, you would be arrested it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't happen but it was very different it was very different then, but I was staying with my dad in this house that he'd built in Barbados, where he loved to be, and I got into a fight with the woman who had become his wife, but at the time was the the first really significant relationship that my dad had been in since my mom, and full of conflict and full of rage. Didn't you know? And I was eleven and didn't know how to properly present that, and I think it was very unkind to. My stepmother, but nonetheless, I was 11. And there was a fight which I don't recount it in the book because I remembered the fight with my father rather than what precipitated the fight. But my stepmother reminded me that it was because I'd nicked her scarf. So, and also, as she said, which made me a liar and a thief. Um, But um, I don't remember Which, we, which that. we've
1: agreed is going to be the title of your next yes, book. Yes, next I book. think,
2: yes. <laughs> the, the Liar and the Thief. Or, I am a liar and a thief. Anyway, my dad was very, very angry about the whole thing and I wouldn't apologise for what I'd done and he said, well, you're getting on the next plane back to England. And he quite literally meant that but there was no flight that night and he was so angry he put me on the first plane back to England but it went via Miami for a day and a night and I went by myself and I went and I stayed in the the Fountain Blue, which is how they say it Fountain Blue Blue. Uh, which was probably the biggest den of iniquity and cocaine like in Miami Beach in 1981 which very prophetically my dad's assistant when he was trying to sell me on why this was a good I was going to have such a great time (laughs) Um, he was like, it's so great, they've got, uh, there's a staircase they have in the foyer of the Fountain Blue, and uh, um, it's, it's the staircase, and it just, it just, it goes nowhere, and I was like, why does it go nowhere? He was like, I don't know, it's just called st- staircase to nowhere, and that was so perfectly summed up, the whole experience, because there is indeed this staircase to nowhere in the foyer of the Fountain Blue Hotel, and um, I went there, and I had a really strange odyssey with a a Cuban dissident who sort of took me in. I mean, I think he just acknowledged a fellow exile and was like, this is so weird that this kid is like wandering around. I had this, I bought these sunglasses that had like a, a beak to protect you from getting sunburned. So I just had the robe, I was like, if I wear the robe that has the insignia of the hotel, I'm gonna look like I belong and no one, But it was, was like dragging on the floor behind me. And I had a fountain with baseball cap and the glasses with the beak. So I couldn't see very much. And I was wandering around trying to find shade. They don't have shade at the pool at this hotel because they want you to pay for a cabana. And like there were, there were no cabanas free. And this Cuban, this Cuban guy just said, you know, you can come and sit with me and my family. And then we had a conversation, an interesting conversation about, um, learning to be really cognizant of the hills upon which you're willing to die in your life and whether it's really worth it, you know. It was was really... It was amazing. He was amazing. It taught me a lot, and it was a very independent kind of adventure, even though it's sort of like called Child protective Services now. Yes. Then it was... Crossed with kind of
1: Eloise. Yeah, it was like Eloise in the... uh, In Miami. But you strike a really interesting balance, I think, in the telling of it between it being a sort of funny, extraordinary story, but also a sad story, and also a story about being lucky. He was a nice man who was yeah. looking after you, but yeah. he could not have been, as you say, he could have been one of yeah. the bad people. Yeah. I mean I actually think he probably was one of the bad people. Like I really definitively I think he might have
2: just But been, not to you. But not to me. To me he was to me he was lovely and and, and talked to me like a grown up, which I really appreciated even though I didn't I didn't understand
1: everything that he said, but I understood enough. When you tell these stories and think about these stories, you yourself have a teenage son who you say now is at the school that you went to, and you tell these stories of your childhood that are about testing the boundaries of freedom and testing the boundaries of people's tempers and patience. Mm -hmm. I know this is a tough question, but I, I wonder how these tales, have they explicitly affected your parenting style, as we say these days? I
2: think so. I mean, I think it can always go one of two ways, can't it? You either repeat the history or you forge a new one. And maybe that's always, that's true every day that you wake up. You can, you can live in your past or you can be in your day. But I definitely had absolutely no intention of sending Henry to boarding school. That I would still be carrying him around in a Baby Bjorn if I had my way. Like, i I'm like his worst groupie. Like, what you doing? Oh, can I play? No? What are you reading? Should we have food? Like, it, I'm probably the opposite. It, but it was just him and me as well, you know. Uh, for pretty much all of his life, it was just me and him, and I was, very, I was very interested in being around him, and I changed my life quite significantly to stop making films and do a television show and buy a house that was right near the studio and make sure that the hours meant that I could see my kid. So yeah, I did. I made, I made some different choices and but what's ironic and hilarious is that despite all of my I'm going to be this hands-on parent I've still got a kid who who goes to boarding school and but who is having this amazing he's having an amazing happy time and it was all his it was all his idea
0: hello it's vas here one of our all-time favorite guests at how to academy is back yuval noah harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there.
1: Well, I suppose I think that if kids feel safe, they also feel able to go away because they know they can yeah. come back. That's what I like to think of. I anyway. think so.
2: I think it's like, what's that great? There's a great, I won't remember it, but it's in The Flea by John Donne and it's about being a compass with the other person. Oh, yes. And the foot that reaches out, but, could be, but it always returns. That's how I think about a hand. Or on an elastic band, something.
1: I want to ask you about Swimming. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I want to read what I think an absolutely fabulous thing that you wrote about swimming that I really loved. People, and, and Minnie writes, people don't think you're trying to get away from them when you go for a swim. They think you're healthy, strong, secure in how your body looks, stripped down. If the weather is cold or raining, they think you're brave. They do not know that water is my escape hatch, the perfect distraction from my anxiety and the shape of a cool gesture. I think that's just brilliant. I have to oh, say. thank you. Um, but I was very interested to learn how much swimming has meant to you. Can you say a little more about that?
2: Well, my mother taught me to swim in West Wittering when I was about two or three. West Wittering is on the Sussex coast and it's, it's not warm. And it's... <laughs> everything there is grey, is, is, is on the grey scale. The, all brown. The sand, the sea... It's so not nice, but my mother made it such a gleeful experience. And I was sort of taking my cues from how much she seemed to be loving it, and I think it must have gone in really early that swimming is just the best thing. No matter the, um, no matter the environment, a body of water is worth jumping into, and you're only going to feel better when you get out. And it's just been true my whole life. It, I mean, it really has. I've u- and I use swimming, I definitely use it as an escape. I definitely use it as therapy. Um, I really, I think it's just knowing when I get in and I swim, I will feel differently about whatever, whatever I took in with me. So it's, yeah, that's what it's always been. But it definitely stemmed from my mother.
1: You graduated from Weber Douglas Drama School... And as you write, you were then the only person in your small class of 16 people not to get representation. But you then did in a kind of extraordinary way. Um, How did you navigate that period? Because I'm guessing one goes to drama school really to achieve that one thing, to then go on in the world as an actor.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're really stuffed, I think, if you, when you leave school. I mean, that was, the, that was the opinion of my teachers who were like, all right. you know, we did all we could and you wrote all the letters and they came and saw the plays and then they didn't choose you. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, and again, that, that whole period sort of taught me about luck and in industry and in that you have to keep working. I was singing in, in a variety of restaurants and clubs where people were not there to listen to the music just to make money. And it was kind of the beginning of... um, It was the beginning of rave culture, really. So house music sort of exploded out of Chicago and into these fields in Oxfordshire, (laughs) it seemed. And um, I I just realised I was going to have this job. I wasn't going to be an actor. I was going to sing. I was going to just make enough money to to do what I had to do, and I didn't have a plan. So I'd go to these raves, but I'm not a particular um, drug taker, and I don't really drink um, to excess, so I would always be driving the car, but I'd still stay there and dance for eight hours with everybody else. And it was my way of dealing with the flat-out rejection of my dream before it had even got started. And there was just another girl who, I, who also didn't drink or do drugs. And we used to... We used to we'd sit on the, on the bonnet of my car at around 6am with like a thermos of flask, a thermos flask of tea with blankets and sort of nice clean clothes watching all these people like absolutely off their trolleys <laughs> running around the fields trying to find I don't know what. And then she and I would have these great conversations on the drive back to London. And anyway, it turned out that she was the assistant to a casting director and at the end of the summer when she said you know what are you going to do it's September in a minute I was like I don't know and she invited me to come and meet her boss and I honestly don't know why her boss had nothing to recommend me except sort of vague sobriety and like really bad hair (laughs) and she, she, she picked up the phone and she called an agent who I could hear down the phone saying yeah no we already saw her she's awful and uh, she was like, no, 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 I think you should meet her. I think she'll be, I think it'll be good. And, you know, the agent listened to her and then signed me up on probation. So it was good. It was, it was lucky. But that was, that essay was called Other People's Drugs. Because it really, my whole career is really thanks to Other People's Drugs. I think.
1: <laughs> but as you, as you said, it kind of, you know, it shows the balance between, you know, there's industry and determination. There's also luck. There's a huge amount of luck a huge mm-hmm. amount of luck and the right moment and y- you talk about being an actor and that you, you say something that it, like it's not just about winning the lottery it's about winning the lottery and then having to win it again and again and again and that must be challenging <laughs> to, to know that you want to express yourself to be an artist but some form of permission is required
2: yeah, and I mean, that's the, you know, I've lived at the nexus of that, like, my whole adult life of how, how annoying it is that you have to be chosen by other people to do the thing that you love. And that, particularly as a woman, there is even less agency than there is as a man. Well, there was. It's slightly better now, but not much.
1: Well, and I was going to ask because you do, you tell a, a startling story, right? A startling story about a chocolate commercial. Yeah I really wanted that I really
2: wanted to get that commercial I mean getting a, getting a national commercial like that was money
1: But it's, a, it was, it's quite a sort of disgusting process that you Yeah well that one was disgusting Describe um, Yeah. and about auditioning in front of a group of men really suits who are there kind of to be entertained by a particular kind of performance Do you think have things got better? Have they not changed? Are we moving forward? Obviously, you can't comment on the whole state of an industry, but it's, it's a pretty striking tale. I think it's moving... F- I think... Well, to, to, to give
2: context, there was this chocolate bar and the whole ad agency, when we, I went into the audition, there were about 17 or 20 men in suits with their jackets off. And there were no, there were no women... And then there was a stool and there was this receptacle that had bits of chocolate in it. And the director was like, right, we want you to, we want you to, it's like the scene from When Harry Met Sally. You eat the chocolate and you have an orgasm. And then you're going to do it the second time, you're going to do it bigger because that's for the Dutch market. <laughs> and I was like, really, do the, do, the, do the Dutch really need? Oh, all right. So, we, so I knew it was wrong. Like I, knew, I knew it was I knew it was really pervy and it was wrong. And but because it was this idea that was sanctioned and substantiated by a room full of dudes, and I was just trying to get a job and like I wanted the money. Like I could smell the money even like beyond like the hideous chocolate. And so I did it. You know, I did it, and it was so grotesque. Like the whole thing was grotesque. The chocolate was grotesque, the kind of the chocolate brown teeth, the pretending to be you know, Meg Ryan having an orgasm in front of all of these do It was just, it was horrible. And so when they told me to do it again, I said, I said that I wouldn't, you know, and then, and that got the response, mm, everybody else would do it, you know. What's so special about you? Anyway, I, I left, and then they called my agent and said that I was difficult, and that that was then this moniker, which is then hung upon a woman like a scarlet letter or a or a something Um, and it was really it's really it's really interesting navigating what is shame and what is actually thinking that you did something wrong and what is your instinct that it was absolutely correct to not do that and yet you realise that that, there'll be punishment for that so I battered that around pretty much my whole career of when you when you speak up, there may well be punitive measures. If you speak up in a way that is strong, um, that word "outspoken" is used, and I've never really understood what that means because I don't understand what is inspoken, like what is its obverse? What is outspoken? It's this pejorative that's attached pretty much uniquely to
1: women. I was going to say it's only women it's who not, are outspoken. It's never men, more. men have opinions. Men have opinions. <laughs> or that's, to which they're or entitled. That's how it's, that's how it's presented.
2: But then you have to be very careful talking about that stuff, because then you start sounding shrill or emotional, God forbid. But I do take issue with that word. I think it's rubbish, outspoken. It's bollocks, it doesn't mean anything. It means somebody who is saying something, who is just saying something. And I've learned that if you, even if you present your argument politely in film a lot of the time, if it slows things down or it makes people have to change their course, you, you can be saddled with a, you know. But I mean, I've Tricky. had my fair share of like actually being difficult, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I just, I really know the difference. But there is no nuance. The way that you're passed, P-A-R-S-E-D as a woman in Hollywood, is there is no nuance with that. But you yourself, if you're lucky, get to see, oh yeah, I'm being an ass.
1: stop doing that. Be, um, you can you can see where the boundary is for yourself, definitely, and particularly now.
2: And now I see it. I mean, I just I've made a couple of films that are coming out this year with young actors, and it's interesting watching young women like watching how they behave on set and just seeing the same old the same old things that are problematic, and there are slightly more mechanisms in, in place for them to um, for them to be treated. I think, with more respect, but um, it, there's still the same eye roll when these young women would ask for certain things that I think were completely within the realms of dignity and decency to ask for, but now I just sit like a very old crone going, oh yeah, look at that, <laughs> uh, if you want all my opinion, I went, I'll
1: I was very struck in this book um, perhaps because I do not feel I have this quality myself by your physical courage and there's another extraordinary story is of, and I think it's the, it's the 2018 the, the fire that nearly destroyed your home Yeah. Um, and the sea incursion <laughs> yeah.
0: our sea based incursion you,
1: you made yes the sea based incursion um, tell us a little bit about had. Well, they I'm, I'm in awe. <laughs> I mean,
2: the, you know, the California wildfires. Are, like everybody knew about those, and they are ongoing. But um, my little corner of Malibu, where I live, I live in this very small community, and every it was mandatory evacuation because the fire really was coming and burning absolutely everything in its path. I think 1,800 homes were lost. They, these guys that I live in, my my neighbors. 10 of them refused to evacuate, and they basically stayed and fought the fire for 36 hours with... There was a retired fireman who, when you retire from the fire department in California, you get given a hose. And so he had his, like, commemorative hose and one other that someone else had. And these guys just fought the fire. The the 15-year-old kid who wouldn't leave his dad went around with a, a hose wetting down all of our houses that are on the perimeter of this gully which is where the fire was coming and that's my house is right there. This kid went around and he wet down all of our decks and our roofs so that any cinders that blew across would be less likely to catch. And they were properly heroic. And at the end of all of this, they were rather stranded with this one FEMA meal a day and they were were running out of gasoline for their generators. There was no water, there was no power, there was no booze, there was no chocolate, there was no eye wash, there were no masks, gloves. And I felt compelled to go and deliver stuff, but you couldn't get in because people had been looting, they'd been dressing up as police officers and firemen, and so the Coast Guard had issued this no ship to shore, so you couldn't even get in on a skiff. But I I was at a moment in my life where I was a bit mad. I'd just been through a really, really bad breakup with someone that I thought I was going to be with forever. So I might not have been thinking completely Sanely, but it was with absolute clarity. And um, I did find someone who was willing to risk arrest to drive the boat. Who wasn't, he was from Malibu. And then I thought I had to find somebody to help me deliver all these things. And um, I rang everybody up and, um, and no one wanted to go.
1: <laughs> I, I wouldn't have wanted to go, I'm, I'm afraid. But you did... Find I did someone like
2: yeah, I found someone that I didn't really know that I'd met at a party who was sort of like a modern day Indiana Jones, made documentaries in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and difficult places to move around, so I thought he'd be a good candidate. And he was. He was great. He helped me. And we had a very interesting day together um, and narrowly narrowly evaded the Coast
1: Guard. But I you know what I loved about this book is those stories that are so much about being in the moment. You know, that actually kind of takes me back to what you were saying about your teacher, Alistair, about really just observing and living things as you do them. And that leads me, I'd I'd love you to say a little something about your mother, Gaynor, who you end the book with, you write about her so movingly. And I lost my own mother a while ago, Um, and it's a it's a beautiful tribute that you pay to her. Um, And I'd love to hear a little bit more about her. Well, you know,
2: Mum died in the uh, like halfway through writing the book, which was, you know, was terrible, just terrible. And I didn't really know how I was going to finish it because what i realized very quickly about grief is that you're it's like you're held in amber it just you're literally held in this place and you you can't get away from it and it's a strange groundhog experience and mum had featured you know i'd written about her through the book because she was just this extraordinarily funny beautiful brilliant person and difficult and awful as well you know the first person to say that that she was those things. So I was like, how can I, finish th- how can I finish this book that she is in? And all I could write about was her dying. And I would be sit there writing through the night about her dying and realizing that it was just... God forbid anyone ever saw any of the stuff that I was writing. It was just so tragic and awful and not fit for consumption. But I carried on writing. And the weird thing is that grief or these stages of grief... You, I wrote through it until I literally kind of banged my head on, like in the Truman show, you know, when he gets to the edge of the of the, of the fake of the world, and finds he's looking for the door or in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when you reach the end of the universe. I kind of banged my head up against the end of it and was like, oh, I've, 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 I've written everything I can possibly write about this. And then I didn't really know what to do. And she very much informed who, like how she bellied up to very difficult things, which was, you just begin. You just do it. So you stop writing about that. And my boyfriend was brilliant. He said, just write. Write something happy. Write a story that you love. Write a story that she would have loved. So I wrote the story of of the sea-based incursion. I wrote that. And then I could go back, and it felt very, very important to this process of grief to at least try and, and incorporate her dying into the book because it was, it was so awful but it was so beautiful and far more akin to, to birth than any of us give, give death credit for and it was a privilege to be with her and we're so lucky that we were. You know, I've lived my whole life pretty much, 26 years, I've lived in California and COVID meant that we were here in England and right there, and my sister and I my brother and her sisters, we could be with her, and I think I wanted it to. You know, she was very funny. She was very funny even as she was dying, and uh, I thought that was worth that was worth writing about. And I think it was a fitting tribute. She probably would have found there's a photograph of her at the end of the book. She would have been like, "God, that's a bit bloody dramatic, isn't it?" <laughs> but um, it, but it's it's great. I love that there is a picture of her at the end of the book. She is um, she's the best sort of full stop. And she was the best beginning
1: but it's a privilege too that you share that with us it's a, it's a wonderful and intimate thing to, to share with your readers who it, it is an honour I think to be allowed into someone's world in that way and, and really get to feel who who that person was and something you I wrote down um, what you alluded to with your mother saying it's all a decision. You just decide, and then you do something. You don't have to know everything, but you have to begin. And that's a great piece of advice for those many moments when we think, what on earth am I going to do? There, there must grief. be a good choice here, but I can't see what it is. And just do, do something.
2: <laughs> yeah, do and something. I mean, her, her advice to me like in my life has echoed through this, this process of grief, which... You know, it doesn't end. Like I completely understand now why people wear black for a year. Like I completely mm. understand it. It's not that the black is a reflection of your inner state. It is to let people know, I am in this netherworld. I am in this place and you should know that anything I say or that I do is let this, let this black clothing give that context. Because life goes on you know, life goes on around you and it's the, it's the beautiful thing and it's the hardest thing when you're grieving. So I think her advice, her advice in living is what's helped me with her dying, which is just, just begin each day. Just, just, just do begin. that day.
1: That's wonderful. Well, we're going to begin now with some questions from our audience, oh if that's all right. Uh, Maybe we'll change the the lighting a a tiny bit. I don't know if that's possible, so we can see. Um, But so raise your hands, and we have a couple of microphones, and people with microphones will come to you.
0: Hi there. there. Uh, You mentioned swimming as being an escape. Uh,
2: Was it an escape from... So nice, easy easy.
1: start,
2: that's great, you know, um, I would say that they're common or garden because I just don't, I've never come across a single person who doesn't have anxiety around something, but you know, certainly when I moved 7,000 miles away from everyone that I knew well and loved, the existential anxiety of being this completely different person, which is what I thought I was on a completely different continent. And that was amazing, but also terrifying. This very kind of vertiginous feeling of, I could be anyone. Who the hell am I going to be? And not really stopping to interrogate why I didn't want to be myself. So, that would bring up anxiety. That swimming would help enormously. I did swim. I I did... I did sometimes wear my swimsuit underneath my clothes, just so I knew I had it on. In case I, in case I could go for a swim, and there was a party that I went to in Hollywood when I first got there, and you know they had like they had the tea lights in the pool and water lilies, and like, it was they made their swimming pool purely ornamental for the purposes of their fancy party, and I was just like. Over the tea lights. And the, the hostess called my agent, and she was like, "It's really very strange. Like, I do, we don't understand. Like, she went for a swim." And my agent, who was Irish, was like, "Well, I mean, was she swimming in the pool? Or was she swimming in like the ornamental lake?" And they, they were like, "No, I mean, she was swimming in the pool." And my agent was like, "Well, there you go. I mean, it's fine, you know. <laughs> this, what's I don't understand the problem." Um, which was really funny, but yeah, I had to rein that in a bit. Um, I love. I really love swimming. Swimming gets you through grief and heartbreak, I've found. Hi. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, choosing to be a mother and uh, being in the creative arts and what that meant, or what that evolution was to being a creative person and then becoming a mother, and what does that look like for you? It's, you know, it's the greatest thing I ever did. Like, having my son was the greatest thing I ever did, for sure. Uh, it was also incredibly hard, you really understand why there, are, you know, a partnership is a useful thing when you need to hand a baby over to someone else, but it was also, it was so clear to me that that was the right thing to do and the notion of it either derailing my career or not being able to afford it, which were certainly thoughts that I had, they kind of, they were thoughts that couldn't really take root. They they just they were so kind of eminently subordinate to the idea of Henry and and him and, and being a mother that I knew that I'd figure it out. I really didn't know how, and I really didn't have a plan, and it was frightening. But I do, I really do believe that babies bring their own luck, and yeah, I think it was one of those things of just. Of just doing it and not knowing what it was going to look like, but trusting that it would somehow be okay. And I've, you know, I'm not scared of working really hard. And I did work really hard to make it work. Yeah. Hi, uh, we
1: have one. Uh, <coughs> excuse
2: me. Question from the live stream. Um, they said that you've spoken about. The audition process and how sexism still pervades in the industry and they're wondering does cinema and acting and film still excite you, do you still love it or is it so plagued by misogyny that there's a part of you that you you don't love it anymore? Oh no, God no, I love it. I love the misogyny. (laughs) (laughs) Misogyny is why I get out of bed in the morning. I mean... You get very used to you get very used to accommodating the hard things in any job, right? Like there's nothing it, it is grim. There has been there has been a reckoning. There are now there are now things in place that really do protect, particularly young women, from the kind of predatory behaviour that we all will kind of witness being exposed. But it's a it's a pretty glacial pace, it 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 changing just in terms of I think women's voices not getting a bit of an eye roll quicker than a, a man's voice you know i think there's a ways to go but um, i have great hope that that will that will happen
1: bye <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you think i would just add to that i mean do you think it's because one also hopes that there are more there are more films being made by women. I think so roles definitely. roles for women.
2: And I, I do think that it's coming, you know, it's now becoming... Someone just said the other day, because I produce a bit as well, and they were like, you know, have you got any female directors? And I was like, don't you mean anyone good? And they were like, no, just, they just need to be a woman. And I was like, okay, well, is it bad that it's being shoehorned in? Or is it just opportunity? And I think maybe, you know... I think you have to just take the opportunity because the more female filmmakers there are, the more female narratives. But we have to create programs that, you know, women can shadow directors, they can learn. We need to create institutions that actually teach people, not just women, but minorities that haven't had the same opportunities, the same privilege. So it's really about creating shadowing programs and um, grants and, you know, paid, work, paid internships for... for people of colour and for women. Um, I think the more that happens, the quicker the whole thing becomes balanced. Who else?
1: Over here? Hi. I read that you said um, you were great at changing your agent when you went to America. And I just wondered what you thought your career would you have been. Like if you'd stayed with your original agent, is there something that you think of I would
2: have, you know, being the top theatre actor or just roles, what was the big regret? Well, there was two two agents that I left. There was the British agent and then there was this wonderful Irish agent in America. And she's one of the the great, sort of legendary agents now. Like, she was kind of coming up then when when I, when she signed me. You know, it's pretty dangerous going down the road of what-ifs. Like, I, I have done it and I found it to be it's not in the realm of self-care to do that. Because it would have been really different. But you've got you to gotta make heavy mistakes sometimes. I mean, yeah, I probably would have had a, a different career. She would have encouraged me to do a lot of different things and I think created opportunities. They both would. But I know the reasons why, why I left. I know what kind of uh, mental state I was in when I made those decisions. And, you know, I, I understand that girl who did that. And it's okay. Like, I mean, there are days where I wonder, but it's, it's okay. Only one person left this. I'm doing, I'm doing really well. <laughs> it's
1: all good. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists, and thinkers including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. you. I just can relate to that, which you touched on as well about misogyny, which is you commented that it's, it's definitely better, but it's got a long way to go. What do
2: you think can actually be done? I know you getting touched on you know, young women being protected now, but from your view, what do you think can actually be done in the long term is going to make that difference? I really, I really do think that it's, as with most things, it's education. I really do. It's training. It's, it's giving opportunity to people. Like, I, 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 I lost a job because it was, I, was, I was let go for, but to make way for a person of colour to take that job. This was completely righteous, and it was right. What was bothering was that the corporation was not necessarily creating pathways within the executive branch for for people to rise up within that company as a whole. So it felt performative. So I think the more that we really integrate the way in which systemic change can happen, which is by creating pathways of education. Teach someone. Don't just hire a woman to have a female filmmaker because that's going to tick that box. Teach that woman how to be a great filmmaker. Give her the job because she's the best person for it. I mean, it's, it's really, there's, there's an awful lot of shoehorning that is happening right now, which I think is maybe not, it's not as damaging, but it doesn't solve, it doesn't solve the problem. But I do think that sharing your knowledge, like sharing, teaching people, um, mentoring, I think those are really important, really important um, acts of advocacy. And that, I think that's how it changes.
1: I think it's, I would say, also, I think it's true in all the creative arts, that there has to be change sort of going very far back people need to see from when they're very young yeah that this could be a possibility for them not just like as you say sort of performatively at the at the end of the process let's bring in someone now you need someone who's right now 7 starting that's, to go to films but, and say, I'm going to be a director. But there's a kind of cultural
2: triage that is happening, which is like, try, I think, trying to make up for just so much wrongdoing in so many areas and so much privilege and lack of access. So there's, there's quite a lot of um, performative stuff that is happening while deep systemic change is happening, but it, it just takes longer um, i think it is probably going to be generational i mean i think there's things that we can do but it is you know i look at my son who's 13 and his class like they are the way that they the way that they are they are inclusion like they don't think of it differently they don't they don't look at things through the same prism they all these kids from all these different socioeconomic backgrounds ethnic backgrounds they they're managing their own expectations like in a different, in a very different way.
1: Mm. Because
2: they, I think they feel that the the playing field for them is maybe a bit more level. Hi,
1: Nikki. What's been the biggest challenge that you've made um, since, well, since
2: you got into actor? What's been the most challenging thing? Hmm. I think carrying on getting employed so I can pay my mortgage like seriously you really do keep thinking that every single job is the last job like the last job is always the last job so the challenge is really in your brain the challenge is to stay is to stay sane and not believe the schism and the gap and to maybe just recognise it and to not be tortured by it that I found it really challenging to kind of keep a a level head whilst wanting people to like me (laughs) Well, I really would, I would very much like to do Barnaby. Shall we do a play? <laughs> <laughs> this is a great friend of mine who is a producer. I mean, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always available. I mean, I really am. I just, it's the weirdest thing. I don't ever really get off at plays, and I don't know why. And it was that way when I, when I first started working. I kept trying to get jobs in the theatre because it's all I wanted to do, and I kept getting television um, and then films. And so it turns out that I've really only done one professional, no, two professional plays. One at the Almeida, this play Chatsky in like 1992 or one, and then Sexual Perversity in Chicago in 2004. Yeah, I'll do a play. (laughs) What do you got?
1: (laughs) I think there's someone over here. Oh, there's a lady over there. Um, When you just about education um, it made me think about um, how inspiring you found that teacher
2: Alistair um, particularly because you said he taught in a holistic way and you quoted in one of his reports that he said she'll be a difficult woman but her husbands will love her um, and I'm just wondering whether you feel that today people can be allowed to teach say in a holistic way because
1: certainly if you had put that on the report card today it
2: would be uh, experienced necessarily yeah it's it's anachronistic that's that's for sure um, I think and perhaps that was maybe that wasn't the best example because it seems it seems a bit cruel no but you're, but you're no 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 but you're right today I think I think seeing someone as a whole person and being realistic about, you know, all our children are not delicate little perfect flowers. Like, they are sometimes and they are also awful. And teachers know that. <laughs> teachers really know that. And they they, 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 he was, I think he was being funny also because he'd written so copiously about me in so many other ways to my parents and about me that this report card was really just him being funny. But we, there are just different mores today, you know, around around kids and around the way we speak to them. And maybe it's, maybe it's good that we're a bit more, a bit more careful, but it can be restrictive when it's too careful. I a slightly more like question, but as a consumer of the arts, which is your favourite, like theatre, movies, and TV? Oh, that's like trying to choose. Like, which is your favourite kid? I mean, <laughs> I've only got one. Like, I can't... Uh, I really do love all of them. I really do. I really do love making films. No, here's the thing. I love doing... I love playing characters that are great. And a great TV show offers you the opportunity to kind of stay with that character. But a film is also the distillation of all of that... All of that... The, the length of time that it takes over a TV series to kind of create this thing. A film kind of distills it and there's something beautiful about that and disciplined that I love. So, and music is just you, there's nothing between you and the expression of your soul. I mean, I, it's really difficult to choose. Um, you can't make me.
1: <laughs> how, Im- how important is your, I would say, identity as a musician? I mean, it's, it's very much, it seems to me, a, a part it's of you. Huge, Does it hugely. inform yeah. other you know. it seems to me, my son is a musician, as I was saying, and it seems to me something that really is everything that you are.
2: Yeah, I mean, God, I'm trying to remember who it was, but somebody really... Oh, I know who it was. Mark Rylance, on this podcast the other day, he said, you don't have to get professionally paid to do everything that you love. And I really... And it's, so, it's funny, when you're a creative person, you think, oh, well, if I'm not writing songs all the time and putting out albums and like, being really successful and in the top 20, then it's not worth doing. But it's such a... It's so not true. Like, I play my guitar all the time, I'm constantly writing music. I'll probably write another record. I mean, I will. I just don't know when. But it's, part of the, it's all part of the process. It's all part of the, um, that crucible. If you're an artist, I mean, it sounds a bit lofty, but like, if you're an artist and not a scientist, I can't speak to scientists, but you throw stuff in that crucible and out comes the stuff that you put out into the world. Rega- you know, Some people like it and some people don't, but for me, it's, it's totally mixed mediums. It's always doing everything. And there's, there's a lot of resistance to that. That people aren't, don't really seem to be for the Renaissance idea of people doing more than one thing. It's like, yo, I can write a play and play my lute. But <laughs> it's, you, you just keep making stuff. I'm not, I won't stop. I mean, you, I think you offer it up. You offer it up and you see what connects with people. Because if, if you tell stories for a living, then that's your job. You tell stories, you know,
1: however you do. You just, uh, or just spoke
2: about your school report and. Uh, into that maybe something with that humour around these days do you think the comedy and the arts is a bit over-policed at the moment oh I don't know I mean people are getting thumped for their comedy that's for sure <laughs> I mean I think we're into a really strange and interesting time of self expression where there is like real time punishment for stuff that people don't like and sticking your head above the parapet with an opinion about anything these days feels incredibly dangerous. It does feel a bit scary and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a comedian and I, I'm really aware of the topics that it is probably dangerous territory to, to stray into. There doesn't seem to be a huge amount of forgiveness. I'm very anti the notion of cancelling a person because how can you... that literally goes against the whole fundament of evolution and while it's not that people don't transgress they do they do terrible things but for there never to be an opportunity to change or to improve maybe not to be accepted and loved again but at least so that the you know there is there is the opportunity to change i think without that there's no hope and without hope there's just bleakness and that's dire so, did that answer your question? <laughs> uh, did, sorry, say that again?
1: may to do
2: it I don't know. I'm trying to think. I'm like going back over my CV in my head. It's like a weird Rolodex. Um, I don't think so. I mean,.
1: No, I don't think hmm. so. Maybe I'll think of it in the middle of the night and be like, <laughs> oh, I should have said. We have time for one more, I think, before many science books down in front here.
0: Uh, I found your uh, reference to the Truman Show scene where we get to the, to the end of the world with the a staircase to know quite really relatable. And um, obviously, to get through that it takes a lot of characters, So I wanted to ask you what was one of your favourite characters that you've played in a film?
2: Ah, I really liked, uh, I really liked this character I played in this TV show called The Riches. Um, I think it probably because it was as far away from who I am as any character I've ever played. She was a southern, junkie, traveller and it was, it was a really amazing, it was a really amazing part and playing opposite Eddie Azard was amazing too. So I enjoyed that, I enjoyed being that person because I, w- I wouldn't normally get cast. I don't normally get cast as a slightly toothless southern meth head. More's the pity. <laughs> uh, yeah, I loved her. I, I, I will always love her. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you very much, Minnie Driver, for a wonderful evening. As I said, Minnie is going to be signing copies of her amazing book afterwards. Um, but please join me in thanking her. Thanks so much. Thank you very
0: this episode of the How-To Academy podcast starred Minnie Driver and was presented by Erica Wagner. The producers were Esme Bright and Dana Outcult, and Dana is also an executive producer of the series along with me, Vas Christodoulou. If you enjoyed the show as ever, please do rate, review and subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen. We'll be back with more next Tuesday. Until then, thanks for listening.